0: Good morning, everyone. Yeah, our Bible reading will be taken from Acts chapter 27. From verse 1 to 12, Acts chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from a Drametium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in, La- in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidos. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lacia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the day of atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. For our second Bible reading, let's open to Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Saviour. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Jesus Christ, our Saviour. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Ransford, thank you very, very much uh, for reading that so well. Shall I pray? And then uh, we'll make a stop. Well, Father God, thank you for all the truths we've been singing already today, that Jesus Christ is our life. And Lord, even if we're not feeling that at the moment, I pray, Lord, that in the next few moments, we might know that to be true in our heads, that those truths would sink deep in our hearts. Uh, Lord, thank you so much that we have in you not just a God, but a saviour. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, I remember receiving a text message from my sister. It's not; she doesn't often send text messages. She's not one of those um, people who often communicates with her brother. Um, but it was, the, it was the day before the—I um, think it was the Euro football World Cup uh, football. I'm not a footballer person. The Euro final between Italy and England, and uh, she sent me this message. She said, "Andy, if you're interested, a friend of mine has two tickets to the England-Italy match." Uh, he bought them 18 months ago on spec for £600 each, including hotel and transport. But he didn't realise that when he bought them, it was the same day as his wedding. <laughs> so he's looking for someone else to take his place. It's at 3pm at Wandsworth Registry Office. The bride's name is Nicola. Uh, let me know if you're interested. Lured <laughs> uh, <lead> me in. <laughs> Well, life is a matter of priorities, isn't it? We can't be everywhere and do everything all at once. We just can't do that, which means we have to make hard decisions. I met up with someone in the church family recently who described their life to a bit like spinning plates. Have you ever seen that circus trick? These people sort of running around trying to keep all these plates spinning by on these poles by sort of centrifugal force. And they're sort of running around frantically trying to, trying to keep everything going, not letting any of the plates drop to the floor. And he said, well, that's my life. I've got my, my work life to keep spinning. I, I, I've got my family life to sort of keep going. And, and over here, I've got my friends who I'm sort of neglecting and, and, and my hobbies, which are well, nearly falling, they're over here. And, and I'm a Christian. And, and I've also got this, this spiritual life plate to keep going too. And he says, it's a struggle keeping all these plates spinning. Now, I doubt any of us here this morning would say we've all got our priorities sorted. But we might sometimes feel like headless chickens running from one plate to the next, <laughs> just only tending to the one which is just about to fall off and drop. It's almost inevitable, isn't it, that we, we pay more attention to some plates than others? Because, and that's inevitable because, because we know what's going to happen if we, if we don't get that report in at time at work. We know what happens if that plate drops. And we know what happens if we don't drop the kids off at school. We know what happens if that plate drops. So perhaps, perhaps it is the case that the plate which you feel is slowing down, wobbling, and beginning to drop. Perhaps you feel it's your spiritual life. Our time with the Lord. Our service of his people. Our, um, our witness uh, to others. And maybe we're aware of this and maybe we feel really guilty about this. And we just, but we just don't know what to do as we frantically run from one plate to the next, just trying to survive. Maybe that's your experience, like my friend. Well, this letter, which I hope is open in front of you, is written by the Apostle Paul to his friend and tol- colleague Titus. He's left him on the Greek island of Crete, which you'll see on the, on the map behind me, um, where uh, Titus has been tasked to oversee, to look after all the churches which uh, had been planted on this island. It's not a private letter. It's written to Titus, but, but we've been copied into the correspondence. So we're in the CC line, if this was an email. Imagine it like that. And as Paul, in this four-verse introduction, which is all we're looking at today, Paul lays out his priorities for himself as an apostle. But I think as we see what Paul's priorities are, we're all going to be helped to see what our priorities might be. And I think it's actually not going to just be a challenge. I think it's going to be a massive encouragement to all of us. So the first thing we're going to see, as you can see from the back of your handout, is that Paul's priority is to make known the truth that transforms. And you kind of see that from his weighty job titles. Look at verse 1. If you've got a Bible there, uh, look at verse 1. If you've got it open, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, um, prophets were often called servants of God. And it's interesting that in the New Testament, the apostles often describe themselves in the same way uh, James, Peter, Jude, and here Paul. Paul wants us to know he's not serving his own agenda, Paul is not the Lord of all these churches. Paul is a servant of the Lord. He's not his own boss. He's owned by the Lord. He's being directed by the Lord. He's under authority. In fact, he says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. And the word apostle means sent man, sent person, a man on a mission, if you like. And he goes on to tell us what their mission is. The rest of the verse continues. Paul, a servant of God an apostle of jesus christ for what purpose to further the faith of god's elect so above all paul is concerned for god's elect god's chosen people and the million dollar question is well well who are they well to put simply the elect are all of the people who will put their faith in Jesus. It might include Christians in, in the churches in Crete, to where Paul is writing, who already put their trust in Jesus. Or it might be people, who perhaps some of us like to hear today, who are just coming along to church with their friends, who've got big questions about the Christian faith, wouldn't yet call themselves a Christian, but one day will become a Christian. Paul says that they are God's elect. You see, the Bible teaches... A strange thing, that the Bible teaches that God is not only a loving heavenly father. He is also absolutely in sovereign control over all his creation. Which means he knows exactly those whom he will save. And funny enough, it's that truth which keeps Paul motivated to keep going as an apostle. And let me give you an example. In, in Acts chapter 18, um, Paul is preaching the gospel in the city of Corinth. And it's really hard going. People absolutely hate what he's saying. They're booing whenever he stands up. He's getting in the neck. He's getting into trouble. And he's thinking, well, sack this. Let's go to another city. So he heads back to his accommodation and starts packing his bags. But that night, God visits him in a dream. And God says to him not to be afraid and not to leave the city. God says this. Keep on speaking. Why? Because I have many people in this city. Paul's like, are there? <laughs> There's no one listening at the moment. Keep speaking. I have many people in this city. And sure enough, off the back of this promise, Paul sticks around. He keeps speaking. And lo and behold, the elect come to foot their faith in Christ. Uh, Tom Emsley-Smith, um, who we're um, commissioning as an elder next week, he shared me a, a, a text, um, no, something you saw on Facebook not long ago, and I think we might have it up on the screen. It, two friend, he just observed this exchange, see two Facebook friends of his, two, two uh, acquaintances of his, and um, one of them wrote this. Incidentally, on the off chance you have a very good memory, you might recall that we crossed swords once or twice at various Christian union events whilst at uni back in my edgy new atheist phase. It's taken about a decade of teaching philosophy and theology to get to this point, but I'm now pretty confident you were right and I was wrong on almost all the points of substance. So, sorry, I guess. Or maybe, thanks? God has an elect. If God has an elect, then sharing your faith with others is never a waste of time you and i don't know who god's elect are i mean we're not sort of given special goggles to go around and saying, oh there they are we're not we don't know do we but more than likely it's the people we sort of rub shoulders with the people we invite to church the people we witness to and so to us god says keep on speaking i have many people in Balaam. But let's push this point further. If God has an elect, then even the circumstances that we find ourselves in are never random or pointless either. Again, our first reading in Acts chapter 27 is a great example of this. Paul is under arrest. He's being chained and he's being taken to Rome to stand trial before the Caesar himself for his crimes. And so he's being shipped away from his mission. He's being taken all the way to Rome, and he's going there by boat. And the really dangerous weather forces them to spend the winter on this island of Crete. Now, as you top that all together, it doesn't sound like a great series of events, does it? And yet, with hindsight, we know what God was doing in that. God was sovereignly working. Why? To bring the good news of Jesus Christ to this island if it weren't for Paul's arrest, if it weren't for that terrible weather, if it weren't for that winter break on the island of Titus, I'm sorry, the island of Crete, then, then this letter would never need to be written because there wouldn't be any Christians there. I hope it's a comfort for you to know that no matter what you're going through at the moment, no matter what you're enduring, it's not random and it's not pointless God always has a clear purpose of salvation in everything. We just can't always see it in the moment. Let's continue. Notice that Paul is an apostle, not only to further the faith of God's elect, but also, continue verse 1, for their knowledge of the truth, truth that leads to godliness. Now, knowing the truth is pretty important, isn't it, when you live in a culture full of lies. I remember at the, um, at the end of, Boris Johnson's premiership. Do you, do you remember when everything was falling apart because of his repeated dishonesties? Again and again and again, more lies coming up. I remember reading a, a commentary about how in England, we're enduring not just a cost of living crisis, but a cost of lying crisis. So much so, we just no longer trust our politicians to say anything at all. In, in, the, in the debates which followed, um, who, you know, who would be Prime Minister after Boris, um, the newspapers had various fact-checking columns because, again, we just don't necessarily trust what people stand up and say is the truth. There are so many lies. Well, funnily enough, this island of Crete was very much a post-truth culture, much like our own. It's very well documented in, in the ancient world that Crete, in Crete, lying was not considered to be morally wrong. In, in fact, the Greeks around the rest of uh, the Greek empire... They, they coined the phrase, oh, you're being a Cretan, to mean you're lying. It's just what they said. Cretans are known to be liars. So on this island, if you're a Christian and you're, you're, you're standing up for the truth, well, it's a very hard place to be when you're surrounded by lies. When people say there's no such thing as truth. You're going against the flow. But as we're going to see in this letter, it wasn't lies just out there. There's also lies going on in the church. We're going to see in coming weeks how false teachers have slipped into this church. And, and deceivers with a veneer of respectability have begun twisting the truth for their own personal gain. So the church on Crete not only faced lies from out there, they also faced lies from up here in the pulpit. And it's into that situation that Paul wants urgently to make known the knowledge of the truth. Because what we believe has an enormous impact on how we live. The knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Now churches like ours, Bible teaching churches, we, we rightly make a big thing of this. Um, we we have Bible readings at the center of our service. We make a lot, big point of preaching God's word. Um, at uh, We're running in the afternoon, this in-depth Bible overview, his story. I hope you can come along, 4 p.m. later. It's why people who come to us, our church with big questions and big doubts, we, we want to direct them to the truth. We want people to help find the truth. But there is a danger, isn't there, that churches like ours begin to think that knowledge of the truth is an end in itself. There is a danger that we begin to think that all God wants from us is to have sound theology and excellent Bible handling skills. That's not all God wants from us. We've been given the truth. Why? In order that we might grow in godliness. In other words, we've been given grace in order that we might do good. And really, this is one of the big themes of the letter. And I want to persuade you of this. We're going to do a little whistle-stop tour of the whole letter. It's not hard because it's one page. But open up your Bibles, and we're going to, we're going to rapidly look around. I want to show you, this really is the big point of the letter. Um, so look at chapter 1 and verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. Paul wants Titus to appoint church elders who love what is good. In contrast, verse, six, verse 16, to the false teachers who are unfit for doing anything good. Next chapter, chapter 2, verse 3. Older women in the church are to teach the younger women what is good. Verse 7. Older men are to set the younger men an example by doing what is good. You getting the point? Uh, chap- verse 14. Christ has redeemed us so that we might be eager to do what is. Okay, we want A bit more interactivity here, people. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. The church is to be ready to do whatever is. Good. Chapter 3, verse 8. The church is to be careful to devote itself to doing what is. Good. Verse 14. The church must learn to devote themselves to doing what is. Good. Okay, do you get the point now? We won't do that again. I should have asked for a bit more interactivity at the beginning. <laughs> so now you know why we've called this series, da da! Good God! <laughs> that's what the whole letter's about. This good God has given us good news in order that we might do good. Christians are to be do gooders. And that's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Only the truth. Can transform us to make us want to do this, and I praise God that that's exactly what we see here at CCB. I'm always amazed. Every Sunday I rock up, and um, people have been here for already for before I arrive, an hour setting up the chairs, setting up the room. Uh, people arrive early to teach my children next door. They're giving up their Sunday lie-in to do that, and they're not being paid. Imagine trying to explain that to their friends and colleagues at work on a Monday. What did you do on Sunday? I taught someone else's kids for two hours. Why? Um, or, or I think how regularly people offer to babysit for weary parents in the church, not, not asking for money—the usual rate of seventy quid a night—but for free. And again, I, I share with my um, mates at the, the school gates about this, and they're like, "What well, they did it for free? Why?" Or I think of people how this afternoon, the neighborhood care team, are going out to knock on random doors in Balaam, although they're not random because God is sovereign, to share God's love. Why? Or I think of two people here who spent Christmas Day, deliberately not with their own families, but with elderly people in Balaam who don't have any family, and serving them food. Why? Because God's grace does good in our lives. God's grace does that in us. The truth transforms us. And through us, it transforms others. And that means we're going to look very different in our society for doing all these things. Now, we're only one verse into the letter, aren't we? You might be thinking, man, he's going slowly. I've only got four verses for you, Sean. But, but um, we're only one verse in. But already, it's worth us asking ourselves, to what extent are Paul's priorities our priorities. Now perhaps we're worried that, I don't know, okay, I, I know what I should be doing, but if I prioritize that spiritual plate, doesn't that mean all the other plates are just going to clatter to the floor? I mean, I mean if, if I'm bolder at work and speaking about the truth, well, doesn't that mean that my, my, my work plate will suffer? Doesn't that mean that I will suffer? If I commit to going to my connect group every week, as far as I'm able, won't it mean that my, my work plate, my, my career will suffer? So I guess we want to be persuaded, don't we? Is it really worth it? Maybe you're here looking in on Christian things. Is it really worth being a Christian? Is it worth emulating Paul's priorities? Well, here's the second thing I want us to see in this, in this opening introduction of this letter. The truth which transforms is trustworthy. So notice, as you look down, notice how Paul's mission to further the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, is founded upon something. It's resting upon something much bigger. Verse 2, it's resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Now in the Bible, the word hope is used in a, in a different way to the way we use it. We, we say, oh, I hope it won't rain tomorrow, but it probably will. You know, we use that sort of vague possibility. Oh, I hope it won't rain. The Bible uses the word hope in a completely different way. It uses it in the sense of an absolute certainty, a future certainty. See, the, the foundation of Paul's ministry is knowing that eternal life lies ahead. And so he gives us three little reasons for this certainty. The first one being God's character. So he says, verse 2, he declares, God does not lie. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a really weird thing to write. I mean, who of us worries that God might lie? But it wasn't so obvious, actually, for the people Paul was writing to. Because on the island of Crete, the God whom the Cretans worshipped was none other than the God Zeus. And I don't know if you ever... Um, read the sort of the Greek myths growing up. But if you know anything about Zeus, you'll know that he was a massive liar. He often, in fact, he made a habit of it. He routinely disguised himself as various different animals in order to just have it off with beautiful women. At one time a bull, another time a swan, another time a rain cloud. He, Zeus was a liar. He went around lying to have sex with women. He also went around lying to propagate his own ends, to, to fulfill his, his own desires and ambitions. Now that's the God... People on the island of Crete worshipped. That's the one they looked up to and revered. So, is it any surprise then, worshipping a liar, that the island is full of liars? Paul knows that what we believe inevitably impacts how we live. And our culture, the one we live in, it spins just as many lies, doesn't it? They're just different lies. Lies which we find very hard not to believe. The lie that if we work just a little bit harder and a little bit more frantically spinning our plates, if we, if we push ourselves a little bit more, then we'll be secure. But we do that and we, we work harder and we run more frantically. We keep more plates spinning. but We never feel more secure, do we? Or Maybe it's the lie that the most important thing for our children is their education. And that's the lie that's been fed to us. And so that's the deciding factor in all our decision making. And, and, and so we raise our children the expectation that their worth and their value is all tied up in their success. And I meet so many students who arrive at university with enormous burden of pressure upon them by their parents who told them the most important thing in their life is their education. And it's destroying them, filling them with anxiety. See The lies of our culture, the gods of this age, they they promise so much, but it's a bit like herbal tea. You ever had herbal tea? It smells so good, doesn't it? You know, someone in our connect group doesn't like tea and coffee, so they have herbal, it's Josh. And um, <laughs> he, he, he loves, and, and you're like sitting next to him, you go, oh, that smells good, but then you taste it. It's like, ugh, ugh. Lies. <laughs> Lies to us. It's like our culture, you know, they, they promise so much, they, 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 they suggest so much, but it doesn't deliver. But now ask yourself this. When has the word of the living God ever let you down? Knowing God's truthful character. We are free to build our lives on the certainty of eternal life. It is the second reason for certainty is God's promise. So in verse 2, we read that the hope of eternal life has been promised before the beginning of time. Wow. Well, literally in the Greek, from before ages eternal. Now, this is just mind-bending. Eternity future over here, apparently, was, was promised all the way back in eternity past over there. Which means God's plan of salvation in the middle... It wasn't plan B. It wasn't that everything went wrong. God went, oh no, what am I going to do? I can send Jesus. And it, that wasn't the case. This was always plan A. Nothing went wrong. God keeps his promises. In the 6th century, missionaries arrived in these lands and, and brought the gospel to the English kingdom of Northumbria. The King Edwin was on the throne at the time. And he was debating with his nobles whether or not he should convert to this new faith of Christianity. And according to Bede, who's an ancient historian, here's what one of um, Edwin's lords said to him. He said this, Your Majesty, when we compare the present life of man on earth with the eternity of which we have no knowledge, it seems to me like the swift flight of a single sparrow through the banqueting hall." where you're sitting for your dinner on a winter's day. In the middle there, it is comforting fire to warm the hall. Outside, the storms of winter and rain and snow are raging. This sparrow flies swiftly through one door of the hall and out through the other. While he's on the inside, he's safe from the storms. But after a few seconds of comfort, he vanishes from sight into the wintry world from which he came. He continues. In the same way, man appears on earth, but for a little while. But of what went before this life or of what follows, we know nothing. Therefore, if this teaching of Christ has brought any more certain knowledge, it seems only right that we should follow it. Friends, like that sparrow zipping through the hall, that is your life. It is brief. But eternity is what we've been created for, and it's what we've been saved for. So is it wise then, in the brief moment that we're zipping through the hallway, isn't it wise that we build our life on this promise and nothing else? The third reason for certainty is God's revelation, what God reveals. And verse 3 is a bit strange. It doesn't finish how I kind of expect it to. I don't know what you think. Look at verse 3. He's speaking again of the hope of eternal life, the certain hope. And he, he says this, verse 3, this hope which now at his appointed season, he has brought to life through, drumroll, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what I expected to say. But he doesn't say that, does it? He? he goes on, he's, got, he's been brought to life through the preaching. Entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. A bit strange, that. I don't know, have you, have you, every now and then, Tanya's very kind. She cuts out of the newspaper these McDonald's uh, vouchers. Hands up if you've ever received a McDonald's voucher from, uh, from Tanya. Yeah, a good number of It's a fantastic ministry. Keep it up, <laughs> sister. And... Um, I often pull one out nonchalantly at McDonald's. Free Big Mac, please. And, and I'm really excited to get my free Big Mac. And um, how I'm often quite gutted to be told, I'm sorry, only at participating restaurants. Or I'm sorry, this is three days over date. And there's like a, it's a limited time offer only for a limited location. And then your, your hope of a free Big Mac is thwarted. And so you just have to eat the chips off your child's uh, happy meal. <laughs> Friends, we should be grateful for the fact that God's promise of eternal life is not a limited time offer. Only valid for people who lived in Palestine uh, between the uh, years of a- AD 30 and AD 33. It's it, salvations for them. But I'm afraid if you lived in China in the 21st century, unlucky. Limited time only. No, it's not like that at all. Eternal life was one for us. When Christ died and when Christ was raised, it was one for us at a definite point in history. But what Paul says here, it's now been revealed to all through the preaching and teaching of the apostles, which we have recorded here in the Bible. Friends, we can build our lives on this promise because it's been clearly revealed, not just to them there, but us here today. But the problem facing Paul as he writes this letter is that he's currently a very old man. So the question is, how will this message continue to, to go out when Paul dies? Well, the answer we see in verse 4. It's through those who inherit his mission. Verse 4. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Isn't that a beautiful way for Paul to address Titus? My true son. Culturally and ethnically, Paul and Titus, they couldn't be more different. Paul is a Jew from Tarsus. Titus is a Gentile from Greece. There's a lot which is very different about them. And yet because of their shared faith in Jesus Christ, they are family. More than that, they are true family. Titus inherits from his adopted father, Paul, not great wealth, but a great commission. And friends, that's our inheritance too. Despite living on the other side of the planet 2,000 years later, we are diverse sons and daughters of this common faith, which means we are brothers and sisters, true brothers and sisters to one another. It means his mission is now our mission. His priority is now our priority. So now is a good time to ask ourselves what am I doing? What am I doing with this gospel of grace? this good news are we just sitting on it uh, accumulating more bible knowledge more bible handling skills more theology and doing nothing or are we letting grace do good in our lives and bringing good to others I think our series poster kind of sums it up. I'm very grateful for Robin Severs, designing this for us. Because as you can see, if you want to go God's way, you're going to be going against the flow of the entire culture. In a culture of lies, it will not be easy to stand up and say there is a truth. In fact, the truth. His name is Jesus. In a culture of self-interest, it won't be easy to give your time and your money and your energy for doing good to others. But as ever, I want to persuade you, God's way is so much better than the way of our culture. We spend so much time, don't we, worrying about all these different plates we're spinning, worrying about the ones which might drop. We're frantic, 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 running between the different plates. What if I mess up at work? What if I mess up this relationship? What if I really screw up my kids? It's my worry. And, you know, we're running frantically, frantically between these plates. It's all so uncertain. It's also frantic, scrabbling for a sense of security, scrabbling for a sense of control, keeping everything going. But isn't it wonderful that the hope offered to us through Jesus Christ, it isn't down to us. It's absolutely certain. It's certain not because we're competent and we're amazing at keeping everything going, but because Jesus Christ doesn't lie. Because Jesus Christ has promised it. Because Jesus Christ has revealed it to us. So friends, I hope your emotion, your dominant emotion this week is not frantic, keeping plates spinning. But rather one of peace. Because God's grace produces peace. As he writes, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Saviour. Let's pray towards that end, shall we? Father God, thank you that you know what we're like. You know our limitations, you know our frailties, you know our failings. And Lord, we so often just feel so burnt out. And frustrated by the things we can't do, by the things we're failing at, by the plates we're just letting wobble and fall onto the floor and smash. Thank you that our salvation has been completely won for us in Jesus Christ, that that plate won't drop. And Lord, I pray that centering ourselves, rooting ourselves on that certainty, I pray, Father, that this week we would enjoy peace. Even as we make the, make it our priority to to share our faith with others and do good. In Jesus' name, amen.